You're listening to TIP. For today's episode, I decided to bring back Lynn Alden, one of our most thoughtful guests we ever had on our show and needs no further presentation. Today, we discuss the volatile India markets, thoughts on Warren Buffett's Indian investments, inflation, and much more. But before we jump to the episode with Lynn, I wanted to share an upcoming event hosted by our free daily newsletter, We Started Markets. We are launching a stock picks competition for all to compete in, and the first place winner will receive $1,000 plus a year-long subscription to our TRP finance tool and much more. If you're interested, please visit theinvestorspodcast.com slash stock-competition for more information. That is theinvestorspodcast.com slash stock-competition for more information. The last day to submit your stock analysis will be Sunday, November 27th. And to compete, please make sure you sign up for a free newsletter, We Started Markets, where we announce the winners. All entries can be submitted to the email newsletters at theinvestorspodcast.com. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to the Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Dick Broderson, and dear listener, we are in good company. With us, we have the one and only Lynn Alden. Welcome back to the show, Lynn. Thanks for having me back. Happy to be here. So, Lynn, it's always great having you here on the show. And I wanted to start this interview by discussing the energy market. And I'll be referencing your wonderful blog post. I have it right here, Energy, the Area Under the Curve, for the first part of the episode. So in here, you're claiming that the industry is acting more rational than before, and you also refer to the U.S. shale producers, which, unlike in the past, are more disciplined now, and they only produce profitable oil and gas. And I found this very interesting, this statement, because we think and perhaps understand that a tech company, think about Facebook or Google, like they might be hopeful to utilize networking effects and achieve supernormal profits. And they can be okay with being unprofitable for some time as they're getting there. However, the situation seems perhaps not to be applicable to oil and gas producers. So could you please paint some color around why top-line growth was more important than profits in the prior decade for U.S. CL producers? Yeah, it's a good comparison. I would say even in the tech space, that can get over its skis, right? So the idea of tech is that you know you can start out unprofitable, but because you can scale exponentially, ideally your revenues will scale faster than your expenses. Because you know it doesn't you know if, if more people are using your server right that's that's pretty cost effective and your increase of need for staff and servers is, is slower than your increase of revenue you can generate with those servers and so that's the general idea of one of those like you know big type of like scaling tech startups and so that, you know they can manage five ten years of unprofitability as long as there's a future vision towards profitability that's realistic I think actually what we've seen with a lot of these recent growth stocks is they push that too far I mean they went into an environment where you know, you're basically selling $20 bills for $10, which of course, anybody can grow when they're doing that. If, if you're being so generous with your pricing and just kind of using your stock to pay employees, and so you're, you know, you're kind of saving on costs there, and you're kind of just really pushing it far. It shows even tech companies, it can be irrational in terms of not having a vision towards profitability that's realistic. And, you know, with oil companies, just, you know, they, there was new technology, right? So there was, you know, not new, it was a combination of new technology and specifically new implementations of those technologies. So it's not like, you know, there was advancements in how to get that oil out combined with, you know, just new visualizing tools and all sorts of those new refinements, that marginal difference that helps make it more profitable or at least doable, combined with an era of record low interest rates. You know, they brought interest rates to near zero. There was rounds of QE. And then you had a number of pension funds and other entities like that being willing to buy up all the debt and equity that they were willing to issue. And then a lot of CEO compensation is tied to how big your company is, not necessarily how, you know, what your net margin is or even what your total return is over, say, a five-year period. And so there's a lot of just problematic incentives in the sector. And, you know, the idea is it's always, it's going to keep growing. There's always going to be demand. We'll get profitable eventually. And of course, the opposite happened, that a lot of these companies just had no clear vision towards profitability. They were over-investing in that p- period of pricing. And like any commodity markets that get overextended, they got crushed pretty hard, both in, in you know, the aftermath of 2014, and then uh, you know, a second time, kind of not their fault, in 2020. They kind of washed out any of the ones that kind of staggered you know, to pass that, that earlier washout. And so I think we're in a very different environment now, where 
you know, one is that due to ESG concerns and just bad returns, a lot of investors don't want to, you know, just keep pouring money into that space anymore. And so those companies are forced to be more self-contained. They're saying, okay, instead of just issuing tons of shares and debt, we're going to actually focus on free cash flow generation. And then we're going to use that free cash flow to pay down debt, buy back shares, fund new growth, and do dividends, right? So it's a more self-contained type of model, which is slower growing, but it's more profitable, less risky, and it generally results in less just oil and gas growth. And so that's, I mean, that's a more rational price. And until the price gets high enough that more long duration projects come online or other energy solutions materialize that are, that are you know, taking that share. I think you bring up a good point that we see so many weird things happening in the financial markets. You also mentioned comms for CEOs. Like we all react to incentives and it doesn't mean that they're aligned with shareholders or they're aligned with ESG, but we react to our own incentives one way or the other. And the oil market is notoriously known for being volatile. And it's important to understand that the boom and bust cycle, for example, you know, the oil price is partly due to the time lag that it takes to add, or it could also be removing capacity to the market. An oil project can be unprofitable in total cost, but can still be rational to continue due to the differences in fixed and variable cost. And I don't know, Lynn, if you could give an example of such a project and then how that impacts the cycles for the price of oil. Yeah, so I mean, shale oil, the reason people went to it, in addition to just, you know, new technology, new access, basically making life out of older wells, is that it's fast to market, right? So less upfront capital cost, but then you have quicker decline rates. And so it's, you know, you're just getting out oil and gas quicker. Whereas if you do a gigantic offshore platform or, you know, some of those gigantic like OPEC, you know, wells, these are things that are very capital intensive upfront, but then they have these long lifetimes kind of the same thing for like oil sands, right? So super capital intensive up front, but then once they're in place, you know, they, they have very like low decline rates. And during that environment, you know, that kind of like easy money, you know, new tech environment, it was all about that rapid oil to market. And the problem is that's like the red queen syndrome. So running in place and you have to run twice as fast just to stay where you're going. They have to run twice as fast again, just to stay where you're going. And so that's the problem with shale. And that's why you can't just go from say, 5 million barrels a day to 50 million barrels a day. You know, once you get up to 10, 13, 15, you know, whatever the number they get to, right now it's something like 12 or 13, the higher you get, it's just like your your existing base is, is kind of dissolving under you as you're also trying to expand it. And so there's limits for how much you can push it. And in this uncertain environment, you know, there's not a lot of incentive to go for these longer duration projects because, you know, they're being told by governments and investors, hey, you know, we're going to phase you out in you know, five years. And, you know, I think a lot of those targets are unrealistic, but they're, they're being told that. And they're also being told, you know, we're not going to give you tons of like financing. In fact, we're going to give a, a premium to these like green bonds over here instead of yours to, to make their cost of capital lower. And also like, you know, we might do, do windfall tax, maybe we'll see. And then, so you're, you're doing a long, you have like the long-term spreadsheet of, okay, do I want to want to put a couple billion dollars into this, like, you know, 15 year payback period project? Probably not. And so right now we're kind of geared towards these, these quicker barrels of oil. But I think in order to solve some of these structural energy problems, we're going to need some of these longer term projects. And right now the incentive structure doesn't incentivize that until maybe prices get crazy or there's more kind of a future clarity around, you know, maybe average pricing or, or that the fact that they, that they know it'll be in demand 10 years from now. Yeah, and like the old market is just so fascinating. And, you know, we might have a few decades back if we did the same interview back whenever no one knew what podcasting was, you know, uh, we might have talked about peak oil or who knows, like the narrative just changes so fast whenever it comes to oil. And I also think it's important for people to understand that right now the focus is on we shouldn't have oil and I don't want to go into the whole climate discussion necessarily, but there are plenty of oil, but it's also important to understand that the marginal cost of that oil is just very different depending on where you're in the world. And so you can put a lot online. It just takes a lot of time and it also requires different levels of price of oil before it makes sense. And then you have the other effect, which is whenever the oil price is, is expensive enough, you have this other incentive that now renewables, it makes even more sense to do R&D in that field because now the opportunity cost is different than whenever like a, a barrel of oil was at 40 bucks. If it goes to $200, like we have different incentives. So you have this volatile environment for those reasons and so many others, I should say. Yeah, I mean, in, in a prior era, if you, if you saw oil, say, double, you'd be like, okay, drill, baby, drill. Let's, you know, let's get some more oil out of the ground. 
And now they're like, no, no, like, oh, we don't know if it's going to stay here and we don't know what the future clarity is. And so the, it's basically a different environment. It's a more bearish, cautious, defensive type of sentiment. I mean, that's long-term good for price. And, you know, that's part of why commodity cycles are so boom bust is because of that delay between the price signal that tells you bring more oil online. And then, you know, especially outside of shale, the number of years it takes you to actually bring that oil. And so usually those bear markets are, are characterized by oversupply that was financed during that prior boom. And then bull markets are characterized by the fact that, you know, that spare capacity is eventually being worked out either due to ongoing demand growth or just gradual decline rates and lack of sufficient new investment because of the bad pricing. And when that price starts to go up, you know, if you don't respond to it right away, I mean, it, even if you do, it just, it, it takes years for that new supply to come online. And in the meantime, just demand is, is really pressuring the existing supply. And that's, you know, that's kind of the story of, of commodities in general. And that's why they tend to have these roughly 15-year cycles. I mean, it varies a little bit, but it's, it, in some ways, it's like clockwork because it's, it's kind of just the overall investment cycle of what plays out. And then you could do an overlay of fiscal monetary stimulus that kind of serves as some of the transition points of, you know, kind of economic acceleration or deceleration on top of that commodity overlay. And you get a, a pretty repeated cycle uh, over the past century or so. Yeah. And going back to the point about reacting to incentives and to your point, you know, sitting in Europe, I mean, don't even get me started all the, all the problems yeah. we have in Europe with energy. And we have all the incentives that we don't want nuclear, we don't want oil, we don't want gas. We only want renewables. And we previously talked here on the show why we can't just use renewables, and not short term and, and not even medium term. There are so many things that we can always go into later that would require for that to happen. New technologies haven't been invented yet. So we have these different quotas we need to fill. And we can say then if we import gas from another country, that we can still fill all those quotas because that quote-unquote pollution happens in another place because even though it's natural gas, it's, it's still fossil fuel. So far, that project or you know, here in Europe, like the backup has always been Russia. And here we are. <laughs> so uh, this, is, this is not my plug for doing, doing a lot of coal oil. That's not what I'm saying. It's just like you have to choose and there are choices and consequences regardless of, of which, which path you're going to take. But Lynn, it seems like the trend line of the price of oil is going higher and higher. And you point out that the U.S. broad mining supply increased 4% since the start of 2020. So you have, in your research, used gold as a measuring stick to normalize the price level. What do you find and what are the implications for businesses and households that has energy as an expense? If you compare oil to gold historically, it's not that expensive in the grand scheme of things. It's roughly around average. Basically, at that point, you're just ignoring the fiat denominator that you know, everybody's, everybody's seen those doom charts of like, you know, the dollar losing 99% of its value over XYZ time period, you know, things like that. So you, you ignore that you know, gradually debasing denominator and you just compare two commodities. And so oil's roughly fairly priced in terms of gold. And even in terms of dollars, you know, oil was, it, it spiked up to like 140 you know, a decade and a half ago. And even from 2007 all the way to 2014, it was like an average price that was equal or higher than it is now. You know, it had valleys during the global financial crisis. It had crazy peaks over 100. And it eventually fell off a cliff after it got a supply glut from that shale we talked about. But really, at the current time, it's not that expensive. Now, your European gas is, you know, that, that's horrifyingly expensive. And so there are, and coal had a huge, gigantic spike in price. So there are types of energy that are expensive. The oil market has not yet reached that point. I think it's, you know, the years ahead, it's probably going higher. And, you know, to your prior point, it's, I think there's a lot of issues around managing to expectations rather than managing to outcomes, which is, you know, trying to, trying to obfuscate, get anything dirty off the balance sheet rather than making it not exist. You just think it's not our, you don't want it on our balance sheet because we have a bureaucratic quota to meet. And so there's, there was an example of European, like they were chopping down old growth forests in Canada and then shipping those wood pellets. And that's like a irreplaceable deep carbon sink you know, biodiversity naturally occurring. It's not one of those like, you know, human planted forests that we just keep turning around. It's like old growth. And we're shipping those wood pellets to burn over in Europe. And that's counted as green. And that's about one of the least green things I can think of. And that's an example of managing to optics. Whereas managing to outcomes is like, you know, more of an engineering mindset. How can we make this grid stable? How can we make the air clean? How can we, you know, balance these different optimization goals and not just push it onto some other balance sheet or, or put out of mind? And the problem is that if, an, if a place does not have affordable energy, it becomes uncompetitive 
you know, in Europe, you guys have had like some facilities shutting down, you know, fertilizer plants, aluminum plants and things like that, because they're just no longer competitive at those electricity prices. And so that can help put a cap on electricity prices, but also puts a cap on economic growth and, and likely triggers recessionary conditions. So an environment that can't get those cheap energy prices quickly becomes uncompetitive in the global market. And, and Europe has been a strong manufacturer. So that's important to manage properly. You know, some countries that are more service oriented can get away with higher energy prices. But if you're manufacturing base, it's, it's a little bit more acute. And then, of course, any consumer, if they have to spend more money on their energy bill, especially they're spending more on energy and then that's revenue for another country because you're not producing it locally, that's less money you can spend on local goods and services. And so that's bad for the economy. And so that's, that's the environment that many countries are in. So right now, the dollar is pretty strong relative to other currencies. So actual oil is pretty highly priced in, in euro terms or, or pound or, or yen and a lot of frontier markets. You know, not necessarily some of the major emerging markets. They've actually held up better. But compared to a lot of currencies, oil is very highly priced. And it is putting a lot of pressure. And then, it's, like I said, especially the natural gas, especially electricity prices, the coal. And so it's, it's a matter of competitiveness and displacement of more discretionary purchases. We follow Warren Buffett and his investments quite closely here on the show. And Buffett recently built a $25 billion position in Chevron, equivalent to an 8%-ish ownership and almost a 30% stake in Occidental. Buffett also have a lot of warrants there, so that's why I came up with that number. If you only look at common stock, it's 20-ish. What are your thoughts on the two stocks at the current market price? So I, long-term, I'm bullish on them. Chevron is one of the more expensive ones, but it's also one of the higher-quality, safe, liquid ones. And so I, my approach has been more kind of geographic diversification and more different oil types. So I have, I, you know, I have some of like that kind of company. I also have some of the Canadian companies. You know, I think that there are other ones around the world. I've also been liking some of the pipelines. He also bought, you know, they bought a pipeline from a company, right? So it's about energy producers and infrastructure. I think like any good value investor, and he's, he's of course, you know, legendary for it. He knows what's cheap and he knows what's underinvested in. And it's kind of an anti-bubble in many ways. And so I think he, he's been smart to get into the energy space. And, you know, obviously with, with his size of his book, he's going to go for the big liquid, you know, longer duration type of projects. And then also, I mean, he, you know, a couple of years ago, he did those Japanese trading companies. So he put a few billion dollars into those. And, and those are, in many ways, they're commodity oriented, hard asset, you know, and some of them have energy exposure. So, and if you kind of tally up his overall kind of commodity, energy, trans, you know, even the infrastructure for moving it, like pipeline, he, he's made a pretty big bet on energy. And I think that's smart because, you know, he's obviously, he's, he's got that Apple position. It's very tech oriented. He's got the banks. And so, you know, I think he wanted to add to the real asset side of his book and specifically in areas that are underinvested in. So it's kind of, especially when he started doing them, it was, it was less, you know, it's a little bit more contrarian than it was now. And a lot of, you know, sometimes he gets criticized for not being super early. Like when he bought Apple, people were like, Apple, really? It's one of the biggest companies. It's already done great. And of course, it did amazing after that. So, you know, when he started getting into those oil companies, they already did pretty well. He didn't like buy them at the bottom in like March 2020. People were like, you know, isn't that kind of over? And I think we're in the beginning of like a five, 10 year story here for some of these companies and just the sector in general. And I think, I think he sees that and that he's, he's setting up Berkshire to, you know, be well positioned for that. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, Homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? a tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions. 
Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. Chevron isn't priced cheaply, as you, as you said. There's also a limited number, even for Buffett, <laughs> you know, or especially for Buffett, of companies you can invest in. You know, if you're sitting $140 billion of cash, which most of us don't, because there are more exciting energy companies out there for sure. But you know, if, if the market cap is a billion dollars, it's just not going to move the needle. But I wanted to talk about OPIC Plus. It's been making headlines here recently. OPIC Plus is a castle of all producing countries, including Russia, Saudi Arabia, two of the biggest. And they recently cut productions by 2 million barrels per day. For comparison, they produce 40 million barrels daily. And I just wanted to give you some approximate numbers for everyone to follow. So the total oil market is around 100 million barrels. The U.S. is just short of 20 million barrels per day. Just so like whenever we are like throwing out these numbers, there's something to compare it to. Anyways, what's explicitly not said, it seems like the members want a floor under the price of oil between called 100 to like 80 to 100 compared to, say, 70 to, to 80 per barrel before COVID. What can the Western world do to lower the price of oil? And do you even buy the premise of my question? So I would reframe the question a little bit. So when OPEC cut, when they did that 2 million cut, it's actually technically not a production cut. It's a cut for the ceiling for how much they can produce. And what's interesting is they were already deeply under, they were already missing and underperforming that ceiling. And if you go back to OPEC historically, it's actually been a problem of the other way around. Like they set a ceiling and then they're, you know, countries are kind of going over it, trying to, you know, sell a little extra around the around the margins, you know, kind of cheating a little bit. And so it's actually a matter of enforcing not going above it. Whereas in this environment, there's been the opposite where, you know, the majority of OPEC countries or a bunch of OPEC countries are are failing to even meet their ceiling. And there's been good research by a number of firms that specialize in energy you know, kind of all out more than I do. And they've they've done like the detailed work on analyzing some of these countries. And they've argued that there a lot of these are near capacity. That you know, that with the current level of capex and some sometimes in some cases just the amount of reserves they have and just overall kind of out, maximum output they can do, that they're kind of tapped out. You know, I mean, there's a little bit around the margins maybe, but they don't have this, this gigantic swing production that many people think they do, which is different than history. And then some, you know, they might have to trim the production ceiling just to you know if, if you keep failing to meet your production targets, eventually countries realize you don't have what you say you have. And so this is, you know, I think one way of, of managing the optics is also the question, because we're talking about OPEC plus, which includes Russia, due to the war, the Western oil companies have had to pull out, they had capital and equipment and expertise that was part of Russia's production. And so the question is, we, we talked about oil declines, you know, what happens in a year, two years, three years, if they can't recoup that level of investment to keep that production as high or higher than it is now. You, you could see a f- mild fall off in Russian production, for example. And so I think it's actually more a matter of OPEC not fully having the ability to keep amping it up. And then there's also a matter of ge- you know, geopolitical alliances, 
deteriorating conditions between U.S. and Saudi relations. And so essentially what that is saying, though, is that there is a floor there. They're willing to, to defend that floor, but also that they might, you know, they might not just have a lot of spare capacity. And, you know, there are ways, you know, North America and Europe do have oil and gas reserves that you can tap into. I know in Europe, they've, they've run into some earthquakes. So, you know, some of these things, and there's sometimes there's environmental groups that say we don't want to tap into this. In the United States, Biden has issued an order of magnitude fewer drilling permits for federal lands within the first 19 months of his administration compared to any post-World War II administration. And that's part of his campaign program. He didn't want drilling on federal lands. That was, that was prior to an acute energy crisis. And so now you have, now you have that dichotomy between, you know, I, you made a promise, but then you, you want to get inflation under control. Then there's that. There's also a matter of, there's only so much refining and transportation capacity, right? So in the United States, we have pretty cheap natural gas. So the question is, why can't we just send that all over to Europe? And of course, the problem is you need LNG infrastructure, which is expensive and time consuming to build. And then even if we get it there, then you need import LNG infrastructure and you need to like have then the transportation to get that from the, you know, the coast to the points where you need it. And so it's a matter of that type of infrastructure. It's, it's a matter of refining. So you can have all the oil you want, but if you only have so much diesel production capacity, you can have a diesel shortage, even if oil is cheap, right? So there's multiple parts. There's multiple bottlenecks along the path to get right. So one thing that you know North American or, or Europe, like Western countries can do, one is they could expand their, their exploration and production around the margins. They also can invest in more infrastructure, transportation, refining, things like that. You know, in the United States, we've not added a new refinery in like 50 years. We've expanded existing refineries. And that's because, you know, they're not the most environmentally friendly sites. And there's always, there's always opposition, not in my backyard, no more refineries. And it's like, well, there's a, there is a trade-off for that. Either you have to import more of that product or you're going to have shortages and high prices of that product if demand does not fall off with your capped or, or slow-growing supply. And so there, there are investments that can be done. And I think it's one of those things where when the price signals emerge immediately, maybe there's, you know, there's, there's the idea that it's transitory or you, know, you can blame someone. But if it goes on month after month, quarter after quarter, year after year, eventually that starts to change how people vote. It changes how politicians run the numbers. You know, they want to stay in power. That changes how companies will choose to invest longer-term capital. And they say, okay, this shortage is here to stay. Let me be a little bit more aggressive here now. And so, you know, price eventually can solve a lot of things. And it just, it just takes time and it, 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 it takes working through some of the headwinds that are present at the current time. Yeah, and I, I don't want, to, want this interview too much to come across as a, a lot of complaining about the Indian markets in Europe, even though it's probably too late. But it just seems like there were no, no plan B. There's so much of that infrastructure that isn't, it just isn't built out. And something that's just always underinvested in is the power grid. Like, it's so... It doesn't sell well like to voters. And if you say, oh, let's just have a better power grid, because what does that mean? Like, I can still charge my iPhone. I can still like, have lights in my home. And like, but that's just not how it works. And so, so what happens is like, the power grid is just a mess. And they're a mess for so many reasons. Like, we like to think, I don't know if I can come up with the best example of, you know, whenever we cook too much food and kind of feel like, oh my God, it would be so great if someone could like take this food so no one has to throw it out. Sort of like almost the same analogy I want to say with energy, because we have so much energy that's being produced and we have so much to go to waste. And one of the reasons, there are many reasons why a lot of it goes to waste is that the power grid just can't handle it. And it takes a lot of time to build out. So it's not like, oh, there's a war now in Ukraine and like, let's just build out the power grid. Like, no, it takes a lot of time. And for power grids to be very efficient, well, it's slightly different in the States, even though I know you also have issues with your power grid, but like that's one country. It's really difficult in Europe because something like a power grid is just so crucial to your infrastructure. So whenever you're building things together, there's just so many different conflicts you need to hash out. And also to your point before, not a lot of people want to have upgraded the power grid in their backyard. Like, no, 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 we want, we want better power grid so we're not depending on Russia, just not where I live. But I still want the benefits. And that's, that's just the nature of how we are as, as people, I guess. Yeah, there's been both in the United States and in Europe, there's a problem with construction in general. It's just, there's a lot of headwinds for doing it. And like you pointed out, there's not a lot of incentive to, you know, run on a, on a campaign of stronger grids unless you're experiencing like rolling blackouts, right? So once the problem has to get severe before it becomes a voter issue, and at that point, it takes years to fix, right? So that's just how that works. And, you know, like the, the funny stat that we have is, you know, the United States, it took like a year to build the Empire State Building, 
in the 30s. You know, we can't build a skyscraper in a year now. We can, you know, we can barely build one in five years. If you try to build like high speed rail, good luck, you know, give it a decade, you'll still have like the permitting being done. It's just a lot of these, a lot of countries are now, it's very challenging to build these, these infrastructure projects. And that includes, you know, modernizing the grid, right? So, you know, a lot of these, these goals, they want to, you know, electrify things more. Right now, you can, you can call it almost decentralized energy. So you have, you know, let's say, you know, my house has electrical power. It also has a natural gas line. And then also my car goes to, and I get gasoline, which is a whole another distribution point, right? So all those, there's three different energy distribution points that are basically going to my home and my, and my consumption. And the idea is we, if we want to fold that all into just electricity, right? So instead of doing, using natural gas for my heating or my stove, a lot of communities are saying only electric now. So that's, that gets forwarded into the electric power. And then they say, okay, now we want to do EVs only, only electric vehicles. And so that whole like gasoline, you know, transport infrastructure that gets forwarded into the grid, right? And so then suddenly, instead of three different channels of energy, I'm relying on one channel of energy. That better be a super robust type of energy or energy transportation, electricity. Because if it's not, if it's not ready for that, or if it goes down, everything goes down instead of having three different types of energy. And so that's, I think, the challenge with this long-term plan of electrification and also just the ability even outside of energies, the ability for, you know, kind of wealthy developed countries that are already, they already have a lot of infrastructure to build and replace that existing infrastructure. It's just a very costly, very bureaucratic, very challenging thing to do for a variety of reasons. And just one, one last comment on that. You know, we, we can build that grid above the ground, but people just don't want that. It doesn't look nice. It's a cheaper option because if you dig it into the ground, which you can also do, it's just so expensive because you have this, it radiates a lot of heat. So it's like, it's just a very, very expensive thing to do. And, and then you have the incentive like with the different countries. So let me give you like one example, like France, they've been providing us with all this wonderful electricity and they're run on, on nuclear. And so we have this thing where a lot of countries, so for example, Germany, like the Green Party do not want nuclear. And I'm not wanting to, to go in like pro or con. I'm just saying that if you don't want that, it's completely fine. Then you just need to, to use a fossil fuel because right now the renewables can't just, they're just not stable enough to do it. And even in Germany, they have three different grids. I probably make this way too nerdy, but they have different grids. And if they're connected, if that's enough room on the cable, they just can't get that electricity. So you have so much electricity that go to waste for so many reasons. Anyways, it leads me to another question here, Lynn. Can we fix inflation before we fix the energy markets? I think not persistently. Now, they, if, if you cause a deep enough recession and suppress demand enough, you know, if enough businesses shut down due to high energy costs, if you create enough unemployment to suppress wage increases, then you can cure inflation, but it's like cutting off your leg to fix the infection, right? It's like, uh, that's not what the patient asked for. What people really kind of think mean when they say that, or like, I think that what they should mean is how can you get back to a period of disinflationary growth? And I think that's only possible once you fix the energy situation. And even then there's some pressures. There's, you know, we, we had a multi-decade trend of globalization towards places like China, and that's stalling out or in some cases reversing just due to one is demographics and, and you know, we've, we've kind of already, already filled that bucket now. And also there's, of course, geopolitical tensions and reasons and things like that. So I think the short answer is, is you know, I've been describing like holding a beach ball underwater. You can you know, you can temporarily hold it down. You can, you can drain the strategic petroleum reserve. You can, you know, China's doing recurring lockdowns, which is, which is actually suppressing quite a bit of, of fuel demand. You can do, you know, you can, you can tighten monetary policy so much that no one's building homes and the prices can get out of control and shut down fertilizer and, and metals companies. And, and you, can, you can kind of press that down by having demand kind of fall to meet, meet supply. The problem is then you, you start to get recession, you start to get unrest. And if you then try to stimulate you out of that, those shortages are still there structurally if you have not taken that time to increase supply. And another challenging thing is that all these rate hike increases, admirable as they are, they increase the cost of capital for energy companies. And so the hurdle rate for them choosing to do a new project is even higher now. And so it, it's actually, it's suppressing demand, but it's also pressing in some cases, supply, arguably. And so we're in an environment where until they, you know, until we grind through this, until we actually fix the, the energy situation, I don't think you're going to get disinflationary growth. It's kind of bouncing between either you're going to get inflation 
or you're going to get recessionary-like conditions with you know, maybe lower inflation, but nobody wants that either. Then the period we're in, it's, it's often in the financial media compared with the 1970s, early 1980s, given how central banks are raising rates and fighting inflation. Now, the fight wasn't equally distributed if we're looking across the globe. From 1978 to 1984, Britain, Germany, and Japan cut their budget, uh, budget deficits while hiking rates, and Canada and France did the same thing, though not to the same extent. The U.S. was the exception of the major economies because vocal was hiking rates, but they were cutting taxes during the Reagan administration. And many economists today argue that while Paul Vogler got the credit, the inflation environment didn't structurally change before the monetary and fiscal policy worked in tandem. Do you agree with that assessment? And I guess depending on your answer, how does that translate into today's environment in Western, in Western Europe and the U.S. where we are hiking rates, but we're also running huge deficits? Yeah, I mostly agree. Also, the inflation didn't really resolve itself in the 70s until they fixed the energy situation, going back to the prior question, right? So you had, you had multiple energy shocks in the 70s, and by the 80s, those were largely sorted out. And so the combination of, of tight monetary policy and then, you know, the energy situation resolved, you know, that, that helped, that, that went a long way. It wasn't just Volcker. And then you have, you know, the fiscal situation is interesting because, you know, so Reagan did boost the deficits a lot, but it's like the deficit as a percentage of GDP we have now in the U.S. are bigger than most periods back then, right? So it, even the, it's not just direction that matters, it's also magnitude. And so that's actually why I've used the 1940s comparison, where, you know, in the 70s, if you look at, so broad money supply was growing pretty quickly. And money supply mostly is created from either bank lending or high fiscal deficits. And in the 70s, the majority of the money supply growth was coming from bank lending. That was a kind of a peak demographics situation. You know, baby boomers were, were entering early adulthood, consuming, buying houses, getting jobs. And so that was a, you know, kind of a, a demand-driven, bank-lending-driven type of inflation environment. And then we added fuel onto the fire with like, you know, wars, guns and butter programs, right? So that we did add some deficits to that, but that actually was the minority monetary creation direction. Whereas like in the 1940s, you also had insane money supply growth, but it wasn't because of bank lending. It was because of massive fiscal deficits to fight the war. And most of fighting the war means building facilities, hiring people, trying to make like gunships, right? So, or like supply chains and things like that. So it's actually, it's a type of fiscal stimulus, even though the outcome is, is in many cases wasted. But when they come back, a lot of that could be repurposed domestically to make cars and to make other industrial things. And so in that environment, you know, that was a very inflationary environment regardless of what the central banks wanted to do. And so I think the issue now is that we're in more of a 1940s environment where, you know, the past two, three years, most of the money supply growth has come from monetized fiscal deficits to deal with some of these shocks that are happening and to deal with the fact that the system's so levered that they'd rather print and, and let kind of defaults happen in a, you know, kind of a fragile economy. Now, if you, if you look at, if you zoom in on the current time, because of the monetary tightening, you know, money supply growth is not growing very quickly in the U.S. anymore. It's been, it's been rather flat. And so that's, I guess, part of why we're getting this kind of contraction in a number of, of you know, sectors and things like that. But the longer term story, I think, for this decade is that the, the money supply growth is coming from the fiscal side. And so as long as that's unaddressed and as long as the energy situation is unaddressed, mon money tightening can only do so much. It can, it can hold the beach ball under the water for periods of time but all that upward pressure on the beach ball is from those other two forces. And I'd even go further to say, even the fiscal budget, it's very hard for them to solve at this point because it, a lot of it is demographics entitlement driven type of spending. A lot of it's locked in. And then if they cut, you know, in many cases, like the GDP growth figures we look at, that includes those deficits. So when you, when you trim the deficits, in many cases, you trim the GDP growth. So if you're trying to optimize for like debt to GDP, Basically, austerity works in terms of preventing you from accumulating debt. But once you're over, you know, 100% sovereign debt to GDP, austerity usually is, is unable to push it back down. You're kind of already past that event horizon. And so I think that's kind of the environment we're in in the 2020s where this is going to be a persistently inflationary force, but, you know, perhaps with periods of disinflationary fight back, hold the beach ball into the water type of environment that I think we're in now. And there seems to be some rumors that we don't need to perhaps hold the baseball too long under the water. At least there have been some rumors around that the inflation target might be abandoned of 2%. There seems to be at least some that suggest a 3 or 4% target rate. 
this is not like an official announcement from the, from the Fed or ECB or anything like that. It's just some some economists that had some fun about exploring that. But some people have taken notice, and there would be different implications if that inflation target would be changed. Of course, it would inflate some of the uh, await some of the long long term public debt. It would also lead to a redistribution from creditor to a debtor, and it would probably also lower trust in central banks. Now, if we just if we were just humor me, Lynn here, and, and say this plays out that we're going to change this inflation target for central banks in the Western world, what are the implications for us as investors and citizens if inflation structurally moves higher or the target moves higher? Yes, it's a good question. I mean. Briefly going back to the, why they would go that. So Volcker, for example, under his watch, when he, when he did his big tightening, federal debt to GP was 30%. And so you know Powell's dealing with 130%. So he's trying to do the Volcker playbook, but he's, he's up against forces that even Volcker didn't have to deal with. And so let's say we fast forward and you know, they're unable to tighten, at least in such a way that they get, back, they get back to disinflationary growth. They keep choosing between either recession or inflation. They can't manage to get disinflationary growth because of the structural force we talked about. If they then resort to higher average inflation targeting, you know, I think that, that causes a number of issues. One, that's kind of like partially letting go of the beach ball a little bit, right? So I think, I think some of those more value-oriented, hard asset type of things do well, right? So that could, that could be cash flow producing things like energy producers and pipelines and chemical companies and, you know, refined, like, you know, these kind of like harder asset underinvested areas. It can also mean like hard monies like gold or, or Bitcoin catch a bid as you kind of have a recurrence of currency debasement and perceptions around, you know, forward strength of the fiat currency and, and people that want alternatives. One thing that's challenging is, you know, going back to the 40s and thereafter, when they did that financial oppression playbook of, of, you know, hold rates, you know, basically let inflation run hot compared to interest rates, you know, eventually people want out. And so, you know, like the, there's that IMF paper by Reinhardt, Carmen Reinhardt. And it was like, you know, you, I think she phrased it like you need a captive audience, right? If, if you're going to inflate the debt away, you got to keep people in the debt, you know? And if your money is going to lose value, how do you keep people in the money? And, you know, to a lesser extent, this happens in emerging markets all the time. How do you keep people in the local currency? They all want dollars, right? They all want gold or dollars or, or you know, other assets or stable coins or Bitcoin, whatever the case may be. They want whatever it is. They don't want the Argentine peso, that's for sure. And so the problem is then you, you generally you turn to capital controls, right? So the United States, for example, they banned gold for 40 years. You can go to, you could go to jail for 10 years for owning a benign yellow metal. And that's, I mean, you know, that's, that's what they turned to, right? And so you also had just back then, there was just obviously worse technology. So you had less information traveling around. You had, it was harder to move money around. And the question is what happens when you run a financial repression playbook in the modern environment of, you know, social media, easier ways to move money. I think that's a new experiment we're going to encounter. And I, I don't think anyone can fully tell you how it's going to work out. I think generally you, you, it, money tries to move towards what is, what is not being debased, which I think would, again, be a, a variety of scarce assets, some, some cash flow producing, some like more monetary, but it's, it's whatever is perceived as outside of that captive audience you know, kind of debasing situation. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in over 20 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T dot com. Corient dot com. As someone who's constantly on the road and traveling, Briggs & Riley has been a game changer that ensures my travel experience is phenomenal. I'm a satisfied customer of Briggs & Riley myself, and I can certainly tell you that their luggage performs. It's extremely durable. It has amazing features that make packing and getting around easier. 
and they have the best lifetime guarantee in the industry. If your bag is ever broken or damaged, they'll repair it free of charge, no questions asked, even if your airline damages the bag. They also just released their Simpatico collection of hard-sided luggage. It has this new one-touch feature, which allows you to expand your luggage, pack it, then compress it to its original size so a carry-on can still fit in the overhead compartment, plus many other cool features. If you want luggage that was awarded the best carry-on by Forbes, then now's the time to get it. Get your new and improved luggage at Briggs-Riley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping? Then give your business the edge it needs with USPS Ground Advantage shipping from the United States Postal Service. Keep everything simple with clear, upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there. And keep it all reliable with on-time ground shipments. It's time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. All right, back to the show. Yeah, and I think that, Lynn, if you read about capsule controls, it, it looks good on, on paper, but in fact, it's really difficult to enforce. And you just almost seem to have this shadow economy going on. You saw like whenever capital control was applied in Southeast Asia, whenever they tried to restrict capital taking out of the country in the late 90s, how they just crashed the economy. It's just very difficult to do in practice. And like you mentioned before, in, in today's world, it's probably even more difficult than it's, than it's ever been before. Transitioning into, into the next topic, until recently, you would think that when the Fed were buying treasuries, pushes down yield. But that's actually not the case. Could you please elaborate on this, what seems to be a very counterintuitive relationship? So in the prior decade, you know, QE was intended in part to suppress yields, right? That it, is, it was one of the tools that they were using. But when actually people crunched the numbers, they found that at the, at the time of purchases, that was not the case, that you'd actually have an environment of yields going up. And the way I like to structure it, I, the way I frame it at least, is there's a difference between long-term and short-term, right? So the short-term is that, you know, when they're not buying, financial conditions are tighter, economy's slowing, financial markets are, are tighter, and a lot of risk assets are not doing great, and people buy bonds. When the central bank starts buying, it reliquifies the market, it eases financial conditions, you see get an uptick in risk assets, people buy those and they sell the bonds. So even though the Fed's buying, central banks are buying, the, for, the, the private sector is selling. They're saying, okay, sold to you. And so in the near term, it actually has the counterintuitive opposite effect. You know, people wouldn't expect that if the biggest buyer buys a product, you know, the price goes down, yields go up. You would not expect that, but that's how it works. But if you zoom out, the question is, you know, let's say the Fed wanted to sell $2 trillion in treasuries that decade. Could they have done it without destroying the price? I would argue, and many would argue, no, that they're basically that even though the moment they buy it, it's actually you know, not the price you actually need to expect, that the cumulative effect of taking that excess supply off the market was important for, for holding down yields. And you know, now that we're seeing more inflationary pressures and we have debt at higher levels relative to GDP and there's just supply glut of those bond issuances, you know, a lot of people were insisting that you know, once, the, once the central banks try to tighten, you know, that's not bad for yields. But if you were actually doing supply demand analysis of who's gonna who's gonna buy that, who's so much of it, who's gonna buy it? You know, right now we're in an environment where yields are going up as the central bank, you know, central banks have, have in many cases pulled back their purchases. And so that that's more in line with intuition. And I think that's more in line with the fact that we have an inflation environment and we have more acute oversupply. And actually that relationship started breaking down in March 2020 because you know, during the COVID crash, first it expected, it went how you'd expect, which is people sold stocks and they bought bonds, right? They're like, okay, we don't know what's going to happen. Let's get into treasuries. And then it got so bad and the dollar spiked because all these cash flows around the world are drying up, but they still have dollar dominated debt to, to service. So there's a scramble for dollars and safe haven status. So everybody's, everybody's scrambling for dollars. And then the problem is that countries with dollar dominated debt, they have to sell assets to get dollars to service the debt. So what do they sell? They sell treasuries. And so basically people bought treasuries, they sold stocks until it crashed so hard and got so illiquid and the dollar spiked so much that 
that they forced sold treasuries and it broke the treasury market. The off-the-run treasury market went totally liquid. There's like no bid. And you actually started to get yields spiking from a very low level at the worst point in that sell-off, which, which is when you think there'd be maximum demand for treasuries. And that's, again, it's just this, it's a mechanical supply-demand problem at that point. And so that's when the, the Federal Reserve had to come in and buy a trillion dollars of treasuries in three weeks. And they hammered down that little spike and they fixed the liquidity situation. That was kind of the first sign of a trend change, that this is not the 2010s situation. This is more a sovereign debt crisis situation. It's, it's different. And that's, and that's really materialized here in, in, in 2022, which is, you know, we, we've gotten past, I think, that disinflationary commodity oversupply cycle that, you know, was, I, I've used the analog of the 1930s compared to the 2010s, just without the Dust Bowl and with better technology, so it's more fun, but it's still kind of this stagflationary deleveraging period. And now we're in the 2020s, which is unfortunately more like the 1940s, which is massive fiscal spending rising geopolitical tensions, outright war in some cases, unfortunately. The, the analogy got more literal than when I originally made that analogy. And you know that, that's, that's more inflationary environment, and that's an environment where stocks and bonds could go down together if the central banks are not monetizing that debt because they have trouble placing that debt. So right now you have, as long as the dollar is strong, foreign sectors not buying treasuries. In fact, they're, they're trimming their treasuries to defend their own currency. It's not, it's not that their opinion is that treasuries are you know, overvalued. It's the mechanical outcome. It's like, hey, we want to defend the yen. We're going to not buy treasuries. We're going to trim some treasuries. That's how it is. Then you have Fed's not, you know, they're they're letting treasuries mature off the balance sheet. And you have SLR regulations, meaning that commercial banks can only buy so many treasuries. So if the three biggest balance sheets are net flat to down, and there's still issuance, then all these like smaller balance sheets have to absorb them somehow. And that's how you get disorderly liquid conditions with higher yields and lower prices. And so I think that, you know, I think that 2020s is marked by sovereign debt problems and currency problems. Not necessarily, the, the prior one was all, you know, the, it blew up in the banking sector and the private leverage sector, whereas now I think it's more sovereign debt currencies and then the, that, ener- that underlying energy input, because you can't, you can't print energy. Yeah, it, it is so interesting that you make this comparison to the 1940s and not like everyone else would say, well, high inflation, well, we had that in the, uh, the 70s and, and, and early 80s. And so I really like that you're such a, such a student of, of history, Len. The world is no short of pundits who want to give Powell advice, and I, I'm definitely guilty as charged. Generally, whenever we talk about the called optimal monetary policy, I kind of like want to use the analogy that it's, it's as wrong as whenever a person would ask you, perhaps, uh, what should I invest in? Because the answer is really, it, it depends on what's your goal. So if I'm turning the table here, and of course, also pointing out the irony that I'm now asking you to give Powell a friendly advice, I, I would change that question by asking, depending on what Powell wants to optimize for, what should he do with monetary policy? It's a good set of questions. And I, I, I like, I have different answers depending on timeframes or how fundamental I am in my thinking, which is, you know, my, my kind of bedrock answer is that I, so I'm not a fan of price controls and that includes the price of money, right? So I, I actually kind of contest the whole notion of the way modern central banking works. I, you know, the United States is a country of 330 million people. Do I think that, that, that there's one interest rate that is suitable for the entire country? You know, is, is, the, is the interest rate for rural Alabama the same, you know, rate? as New York. And, you know, is, should this be set by a small committee of elders, right? So I would say no, right? So I, I, I kind of just, in some cases, throw out the model. But that is the model we live in. That's the model that we, we operate in. So then the question becomes, what do you do with that model? So I think if, if Powell's trying to optimize for inflation, which he's actually kind of legally mandated to do, right? He's got, two, he's got really three mandates. One is, you know, low unemployment, which he's got officially the way they measure it. Then it's stable pricing, which they define as 2% average inflation. They're currently way above target the way they measure it. So he's got to get that down in terms of mandates. And then they have the, kind of the third shadow mandate of financial stability. So the treasury market blows up, they have no choice but to go in and, and, and fix that before it melts down, right? So he's, he's got a clear mandate, which is increase unemployment and, and decrease inflation. So I think, I think you know, using the, the limited tools he has He's kind of forced to do what he's supposed to do. So I'm not really sure what I would do different if I was Powell. 
because I think I think it's almost an unsolvable problem. It's like, how do you give advice to solve an unsolvable problem or or kind of a bad algorithm for what you're supposed to do? So in, in general, I think in this environment, only solving for inflation is the wrong problem. And instead, it's how to get disinflationary growth, which is mostly not a central bank question. It's mostly a private sector and fiscal policy question. It's mostly how do you get more energy supply? How do you get more infrastructure, right? That kind of thing. And that's not something Powell has any control over. He's even said we have no control over food and energy prices. So that might be even a hint at, at average inflation targeting if they, you know, if, if they just can't get the energy situation under control. And they're like, well, we killed rents at least. So, you know, that's the best we could do. Right. So I, I think there's only so much any central banker can do. It's, it's the Kobayashi Maru for, for people that, that, you know, know Star Trek, right? The, the unsolvable situation. And so I think that's, that's kind of what they're in. And the only way around that is probably eventually to change some of the mandates or to redefine how you interpret the mandates, which can include things like just different levels of inflation targeting. And I think but I, the longer term story is I would like to see better technology so that, that there's not like, you know, a committee of like, you know, a handful of elders setting an interest rate for 330 million people in kind of a manual process. I mean, you see things like they do interviews, and they're like, well, we're going to pencil some interest rate hikes in and we're going to. It's like that's how we're running. It's it's one is we're in the 21st century and we're penciling interest rates. You know, that we're, we're penciling in basically price controls for the 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 price that sets all other prices. And and so you know, it's different different answers for different time frames, I guess. But I I feel bad for Pal. I don't know what I would do differently. No, like there there are choices and consequences, and he's just trapped between a rock and a hard place. Someone will get mad at him regardless of what he do. That's exactly that's yeah. for sure. And before, Lynn, you said 330 million people. I am almost inclined to say 8 billion because we yeah, hear that. Yeah, that's true, actually, yeah. I mean, yeah, because we hear that the U.S. is, is exporting inflation given the continuous interest rate hikes. Could you please help us understand what does it mean whenever we hear that the U.S. Ex- is exporting inflation and what is the implication of the U.S. monetary policy to, to the world? So most commodities are priced in dollars. So if the dollar is strengthening compared to most currencies, that's making them harder to afford in their local currencies. In addition, most global financing happens in dollars, right? So if an entity in Europe wants to finance some Latin American debt, either either government debt or corporate debt, there's a good chance it'll be in dollars. You know, there's some in euros, but it's a distant second compared to dollars. And so when Powell or any anyone at the Fed, when they tighten monetary policy, they're basically hardening the dollar and then they're hardening everyone's liabilities, right? So in addition, like as you point out correctly, in addition to affecting 330 million Americans, you know, you have like, you know, an entity over in Turkey or Sri Lanka or Brazil or, you know, just China, country XYZ, they're getting squeezed due to a decision by a council in another country because they've, you know, for, for network effects, for global hegemony reasons, for all sorts of historical reasons. And then and also just the fact that they haven't found a better alternative, they're using, you know, another country's money and assets as their money or their their reserve asset or their debt financing, and that they get squeezed by that. They're they're subject, to, you know, they're they're basically subject to that foreign power. And so, when the dollar strengthens, it can help us get inflation under control, but it's actually making it worse for the periphery. That's kind of how this whole system's been designed, which is to push volatility to the periphery, right? So. The core is the U.S. The secondary ring is like all the other, you know, leading developed countries, and then the periphery is like, especially the frontier, the emerging market and frontier countries. We just we push volatility to to them, which is, you know, many would say unjust, but that that's how the system's designed, and that can work as long as the treasury market is functioning because the the feedback loop, you know, one thing that has happened over time, you know, for example, in 1980s when Volcker tightened, it broke Latin America. It just, you know, it basically caused all these all these debt and currency crises down there. That's big. It was a big contributing factor to that. Whereas now, a lot of those countries have more reserves than they had back then. And then another example, actually a stronger example, is late '90s. You know, strong dollar broke Southeast Asia. It broke their situation. Now, especially Southeast Asia, has very strong reserves. They've learned their lesson, and they've accumulated a lot of reserves during good times. And so, when the dollar strengthens. They have a lot of reserves that they can use to defend their currency and, and sell. And then the question becomes, who breaks first? Is it the whole world or is it the treasury market? And the answer is, a little, I think, a little bit of both because the periphery, unfortunately, still breaks first. 
you know, the, the poorest countries, the, the frontier markets, they just don't have the reserve, they have the debts, they have, you know, just weak pricing for, for the import commodities they need. So they unfortunately break first. But then it becomes a question of major emerging markets kind of versus the US. So, you know, it's like the question is like, can can Japan and China sell more treasuries than the US private sector can buy, right? And so they each of these have like a trillion dollars of treasuries, give or take. And then you add Switzerland, it's another developed country, but then you go into emerging markets and you know, Taiwan's got a ton of US assets. Brazil has a decent amount of US assets and they also have commodity exports. And so it becomes that, it is like a global kind of, you know, that, that, that type of knot, I forget the name of it. It's like all, all tied up together. And it, how, do you, how, do you unf- how do you unfold that knot? And I think, I think the thing to watch is the treasury market because there are feedback loops here. It's not, that goes back to the impossible question. You know, Powell can't, he doesn't have complete control over what he does because, you know, he's got limitations like the treasury market and things like that, that he's got to deal with. And so it, it becomes, how far can he push it? How many kind of twists or tools can he do it in his, in, his, in his shop to keep the treasury market functioning while he's trying to tighten elsewhere? And so, yeah, basically we live in a system where we, we do our best to push volatility to the poorest of the world, the periphery. If we look at emerging markets, they're definitely in a, in a world of pain in so many ways. But to your point before, it is interesting that they have stronger reserves. They learned a lot from what happened in the 90s. And one of the things that they also learned was to have less debt and denominated in dollars, which just gets so much more expensive uh, whenever the, the dollar gets expensive and, and because of, of high rates. Because I was still surprised knowing that to learn that many emerging uh, currencies, including the currencies of Brazil, Mexico, and Peru, have performed better than the US dollar over the past oh, 12 months or, or at least this year, and much better than the traditional seen stronger currencies like euro, pound at the yen. Of course, we could also like point to currencies like the Turkish lira and say, well, it doesn't go for all emerging markets. But I still want to point out the irony that many emerging markets are forced to be more hawkish when times get tough than the more developed economies. Why is that? Well, because historically, they have the weaker currencies. They're the ones that are more prone to currency crisis. And so they have to be hawkish. And that, that means you know the US gets the luxury, usually, of easing into a, a recession and tightening into a stronger economy. Whereas a lot of emerging markets have to tighten into a weak economy just to defend from a currency crisis because the, because the, you know, the, the Fed's tightening, right? So, so they have to defend against the fact that the rich people of the world are trying to push volatility to them and they have to use their reserves and, and, and also tightness to try their best to defend against that. And over time, some emerging markets have, have matured. They've, they've, they've entered the higher level of, of, of emerging markets. And so they build up more reserves and they have more resilience. So when people, when people just say, quote, emerging markets, as though it's one group, it's actually very different groups. And so ironically, why a lot of, of the bigger emerging markets are holding a better than the developed country currencies this year is because right now, it's, you know, a lot of them have decent reserves and they've been pretty hawkish. And so the, the areas of weakness are countries that have either a combination of energy inputs that are now higher priced, so they've, they've worsened their current account balance, and they have so much debt that they can't raise interest rates properly. So that includes like Japan, that includes you know, parts of Europe. And so those are the ones you're seeing a lot of crises in, whereas Brazil, you know, they front ran the Fed, they jacked up interest rates super high, they also have a decent commodity situation, obviously. And so you know, they're not being as punished as you know, some of these, these Western sovereigns or these, these developed ex-US sovereigns. And then, but you still have, you know, Turkey, they have a lot of dollar damage debt. They don't have a lot of reserves. And then they have kind of unusual beliefs about interest rates. So, you know, they have super high inflation and they don't want to tighten the, the interest rates. And so, you know, until you kind of fix the energy situation, the fiscal situation and, you know, positive real rates, it's hard for that currency to, to fully stabilize. And so it, it becomes a very country by country specific issue rather than, you know, developed markets versus emerging markets. Because even among developed countries, there are some that are, you know, they have a ton of reserves, maybe they're energy sufficient, right? And so they're, they're doing okay. And so it becomes more about the energy and the debt. Well said, Lynn. Before we end this, this interview, and, and I definitely want to give you a handoff too, is there anything you feel that we haven't covered in this interview? I think we covered quite a bit. I think it's just, it's, it's about, you know, going forward, it's obviously going to be volatile in a lot of ways. And 
I think it's just important to focus on the fundamentals. You know, disinflationary growth generally comes when your necessary input costs are cheap and abundant, which is things like commodities and basic labor. And there's, you know, there's freedom to innovate and grow and, and, and increase productivity, right? So when, when people had to farm by hand, then they got tools, then they got tractors, and then maybe get self-driving tractors, right? You, you, keep, you, you keep increasing the, the productivity of a per-farmer basis to feed the, the rest of the world. And that, that applies industry after industry after industry. And when you go through you know, the, the long arc of history, is, especially once we discovered like, you know, hydrocarbons and these denture energy sources, it's been this upward trend of more and more productivity. But there are, there are periods of setback. You know, there are you know, wars, for example, are, are very malinvestment. They, they're inflationary. Same thing with like, you know, if there's, if there's things that prevent productivity from increasing, things that prevent business from, from functioning, that can suppress productivity. Then, if you have underinvestment in those input costs, those 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 like raw commodities, that's inflationary. That's it's bad for productivity. It's it's more expensive to afford basic things that we were affording cheaply before. And so, I think investors would do well to think of it like that, which is just it's, it's very simple. It's what are the input costs? What is the productivity like? Are we more or less product, productive and efficient than we were, you know, four years ago? And, and so, it's it's no wonder that we're having this type of inflation. And then you overlay that, of course, with the the money supply growth and and the the flexible ledgers that we use to try to to deal with this. And so, I think that's that's the environment that we're navigating, which is you know we're dealing with currency debasement, but then we're also dealing with real world physical limits on productivity and and input capex. That a lot of those are solvable, but they take time. That's so well said. It's not too long ago, probably it was, it was just a few days ago, I said to my wife before we're going to bed, not to put her to sleep, but I, I, I did tell her that, you know, in 10 years, people would be reading about now, like with all the things that's going to happen. The financial history books are being rewritten right now. Thank you, as, as always. It's, it's always so much fun having you on the show. I'm sure the audience would like to connect with you. Where, where can they learn more about you? And, and please also give a plug for your, your wonderful blog. I appreciate that. So yeah, they, they can find my work at lindalton.com. I'm also on Twitter at lindaltoncontact. And so I have a variety of, of free material and, and content that people can explore. Fantastic. Lynn, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to speak with us here today. Yep. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.